Please turn back to page 1172, where you'll find this last chapter of Galatians. Over many years of ministry, I've learnt a few things. And one thing I've learnt is that there is nothing more sinister than when somebody lays his hand on your shoulder and calls you brother. Yet you know something is about to happen. And if the next sentence is, what I'm saying to you is in love, that's even worse. You really know. You are in trouble. And therefore it may not be without significance that uh, Paul ends this last chapter of this red-hot letter. He begins with the word brothers, and he ends with the word brothers. But actually, he's not just giving them a punch. He really believes that's what matters. He wants to talk about what our title is tonight, Authentic Christianity. He wants to present the real thing in the midst of all the pressures that they've been under in this church in Galatia, which he'd had to address. Oh, you will notice, let's be quite clear, he's not forgotten the battles there in verse 12 and 13. It comes back, he can't forget this issue that's been concerning him about those who preach another gospel. And uh, you may have noticed that Paul, nearly always when he's writing a letter, ends with greetings to people. Not here. Not a word of greeting to anybody. There was no thanks at the beginning, no greetings at the end. It's red hot stuff. And yet he wants to get across this idea that Christian brotherhood, genuine fellowship in the gospel, is the real way to overcome the false gospel, which he condemned in chapter 1 so roundly. Anybody who preached another gospel is to be eternally condemned. Love is not weak tolerance of another gospel. Real Christian love will fight against another gospel. And a word that comes several times in this chapter is the word bear, B-E-A-R, bear. It comes several times. It's interesting, really. It begins with a reminder that we are to bear each other's burdens in verse 2. That is to say that that it's part of our responsibility to care for each other. That's authentic Christianity. Or again in verse 5, we should bear our own load carry in our version here, but the word bear is a word we would normally use. And that is to say that it's our response, it's not contradicting the other one, it's not saying, well, you bear each other's burdens, but also bear your own load. It's saying that it's our responsibility to make sure that we uh, are making sure the church is a church of love. Now, there were times when people would say to me, going out of church, do you know, Vicar, nobody spoke to me today. So my answer was always, did you speak to anybody? Oh, well, uh, No, not really. Very odd, isn't it, really? We expect people to take the the initiative all the time. We are to bear our own load. And it goes further, this word bear. It actually comes in chapter 5, verse 10, where I was preaching two weeks ago. In chapter 5, verse verse 10, uh, is the word, translated in my version, the one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty. Again, it means we'll bear it. He'll have to suffer for it, the one who is dividing the church. But in the contrast, in verse 17 of this Galatians 6, Paul gives that wonderful testimony, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, the stigmata. No, it's got nothing to do with strange things appearing on strange people in history. You may have come across those stigmata. If you ask Paul to show you the stigmata, he'd show you where he'd been stoned, where he'd been whipped, the deprivation of years of suffering. They were the marks of Jesus. So nothing sort of pietistic, just sheer 
dedication, sheer following in the cross of Jesus. And therefore, if we want the church to be authentic Christianity, there is a price to pay. And it's rather lovely that we're doing this at a communion service where we're reminded of the marks of Jesus. It is, of course, uh, uh, Paul's final word. And you notice in verse 11 that he puts his own signature. Paul would have had a, an amanuensis, a secretary doing all the writing. Uh, but eventually he, he chimes in. And he wants them to know that he cares deeply. See what large letters I use as I write with my own hand. I have a theory that Paul had eye trouble. And because he had eye trouble, his writing was not terribly legible. My writing is not terribly legible and I have no eye trouble. But there are those who, uh, uh, the reason is that uh, you can't see. And it, my theory is based on chapter 4, verse 15, where Paul says, when I came to you, you would gladly have given me your eyes. There was eye trouble. It may have been the thorn in the flesh, uh, which he speaks about in 2 Corinthians. Who knows? But what he wants to say here is he writes his large script, I feel very deeply. And do you notice, when he's signed off his letter, he goes back into that which bothers him enormously. And I make, I make no apology that, that this, I'm no Apostle Paul, I'm not writing to you in my own hand, but uh, as I think of the state of the church around, my son-in-law's uh, spent today, you may have heard him on radio today, having to comment about two clergymen getting married in a, civil, in a same-sex marriage in London, and uh, why do we have to bother about that on a Sunday when my son-in-law wants to be busy with ministering to a large congregation? But you see, that's happening all around us. And uh, it, it concerns me deeply that the other gospel is still pre prevalent. We're not just living in and This is not old stuff. It's right on our very doorstep. I'm glad to know that Paul's going off next week to GAFCON, Global Anglican Fellowship Conference, and he'll be joining a thousand other people there. And uh, they're trying to make a stand for the gospel, the evangelical gospel in the Church of England. We'll be praying very much for Paul and others who go later on uh, in the week. But the challenge comes to us that here we are living in, a, in an age when authentic Christianity is very often being lost. So what does this chapter say to us? There are two other words in this, in this uh, chapter alongside the word bear, and they all have a kind of assonance. One is care, and the other is share. I think I remember there was a time when the co-op was supposed to be a caring, sharing co-op. For 29 years when I was vicar of Fulbert, I hardly ever went into the co-op down there. If I ever did, they'd say, is Margaret ill? Uh, now I appeared in the co-op. But uh, since retirement, I've learned to wander around. And now I know why she was always late coming back from the co-op. Everybody you meet, and everybody in the church there. And I've got a great idea. If you really want to evangelize or do pastoral counseling, go down to the co-op, pick up a basket, don't buy anything, just wander around, and you have <laughs> tremendous opportunities. Well, whether or not the co-op is bearing or sharing, uh, or caring or sharing, the Christian community in this area should be caring and sharing and bearing. Three thoughts then. The proof that we care, the way that we share, and the things that we bear. The proof that we care, there in verses 1 to 5, where we show it in a true restoration. It is the job of a spiritual Christian to restore. Now, it may be the word spiritual is sarcastic. It may be, Paul is saying, you super spiritual people, please show it by the way you deal with people who are in need. Or it may just be straightforward. 
The mark of a spiritual person is not how many meetings they attend and how much theology they understand. It's uh, how do we care for people in need? You are spiritual, should learn to restore. Now, will you notice, it doesn't say what the sin is that somebody's been caught in. It's a very real sin. They were caught doing it, the verb suggests, right in the middle of it. Maybe a sexual sin. It may have been to do with money and greed. These are always around. I have a, think, I have a, fear, a feeling that it may well have been to do with the whole theme of Galatians. It's one of those who was causing trouble in the church. And if you find them, what do you want to do with them? Excommunicate them? Eventually, possibly. Oh, uh, the reading I had from the Gospel I asked for particularly because that's Jesus telling us we must try to sort out our problems with the person. If that doesn't work, we must get some witnesses. If that doesn't work, the church must make a decision. And if that doesn't work, we must turn them out. That's quite straightforward. That's Jesus talking, not, not me. And so the Apostle Paul allows that to be a possibility. But what we long to do and what Paul always stresses is our greatest desire is to restore them back into the fellowship. That's the aim. If they do not respond, then they, as it were, put themselves outside. Would you notice how you do it in verse 1? You restore them gently. What a lovely word that is. The real spirit of Christ, gently. We do it because we know at the end of verse 1 that we ourselves are prone to sin. We're not we are not sitting in judgment. We recognize that we may have a plank in our own eye, but how much that's misunderstood. When Jesus said, don't you bother about the speck in your brother's eye until you sorted out the plank in your own eye, he is not suggesting that we are worse sinners than everybody else, but he is suggesting that our sins should concern us more than everybody else's. And then he is clearly teaching that once we have sorted out it is our responsibility to help remove the speck in our brother's eye. We have a, a concern and a responsibility. But the aim is to restore. We know our own weakness and we do it gently. And we're doing it in verse 2. We're bearing each other's burdens and we are fulfilling, please note that, the law of Christ. What's Christ's law? I give you this commandment, a new commandment that you love one another. That's a command. Last week, I wasn't here last Sunday night, last week you were looking at the end of chapter 5 of Galatians, and at the end of chapter 5, it talks about, verse 24, keeping in step with the Spirit, walking with the Spirit. This chapter reminds us later on, in verse 16, that we are to follow this rule, and that the verb is to walk according to the rule. So walking by the Spirit and walking by the Word of God are two sides of the same coin. You cannot claim to be walking with the Spirit and turning your back decisively on the Word of God. You may not uh, turn upside down Christian moral standards and say, I'm walking by the Spirit. You walk by the law and you walk by the Spirit. Uh, on the other hand, if you do walk by the Spirit, it will be with a gentleness and, a, and an awareness of your own need. So, a true restoration. I'm sort of glad this, this, this sermon comes in communion because later on in communion we'll be reminded that it's our responsibility, whether we use these words or not, when we come to communion to be in love and charity with our neighbours as well as uh, aware and, of confessing our own sin.
And being in love and charity with our neighbours is a challenge to us to long to restore, to restore relationships, to bring together. That's what God wants. This is authentic Christianity. God help us to be that as we kneel at the, the rail in a few moments' time. A true restoration, but also in verses 3 to 5, uh, the proof that we care is seen in a true estimation, verses 3 to 5. That is, we, we're to look at our spiritual health and we are to test ourselves, verse 3. We must test ourselves, verse 4. We, we test our own actions. Now, in the, in the matter of spiritual health, as in the matter of physical health, there are some people who test themselves too much. They do it in, in physical health. There are people who weigh themselves every day. Uh, there are people who have blood pressure things and they try them every day. Uh, there are people who are always taking their temperature. They're always checking themselves out. And you become sort of paranoid if you do that kind of thing. On the other hand, it's a good thing every now and again to apply the test. And spiritually, there are some people who become desperately inward-looking, who are always taking their spiritual temperature, who always sort of are coming to that place of thinking that they have to sort everything out in their lives. But there are many of us who don't test ourselves enough. And isn't that communion, 1 Corinthians 11? That when we come to communion, we should examine ourselves. And as we examine ourselves, we recognize our need and then where it's wrong, we must put things right. It may be a matter of things wrong in our lives that need to be sorted out. It may be in our relationships. I should never forget, in the days when I uh, did confirmation classes with the adult group, I remember one dear lady, uh, and when we got to the bit in the prayer book, said that you, you, you that are in love and charity with your neighbours, uh, and so on, she said, oh, wait a minute, does that mean my Aunt Ethel? I said, well, no, wait a minute, I haven't met your Aunt Ethel. Uh, what do you mean, does it mean your Aunt Ethel? Well, she said, and she told me a long story about the wickedness of her Aunt Ethel and that she could never possibly forgive her and would she not be able to come to communion? And I've always worried about this Aunt Ethel. All I know is that the lady never returned to the confirmation class the week after, so Aunt Ethel won the day. Because, you see, she found it hard to think that she was meant to forgive a person who'd been such a menace to her. If we had in these verses a true estimation of ourselves, we shouldn't compare ourselves with others. We should only compare ourselves with the Lord himself. Do you see that there? We carry our own load. We're able to take pride in ourselves not because we are sufficient in ourselves, but at the end of the day, we render an account of our own lives to God. And we don't render an account of our brother's life. So as we come... This is the proof that we care. It's a church of true restoration. It's a church where people have true estimation of themselves, genuine humility. Secondly, the way that we share, verses 6 to 10, in giving and in doing good. Verses 6 uh, to 8 are all about giving. That is to say, uh, we are to share um, our gifts with others and we demonstrate that by caring for those. It's really a word about... Um, Pastors and preachers and full-time missionaries. There was a time when Christian workers were very much, uh, not on the breadline, but way down and not looked after as they might have been. I always love that, that verse in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about, you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. You like that verse. It's all to do with clergymen, that. Would you think of Paul as, as, as treading out the corn? You shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. That is they shall be able to enjoy 
they should be able to do their job and, yes, be looked after. And so the challenge is, in giving, we show fellowship. Will you note in verse 6, the word that's share all good things is a simple Greek word for fellowship, koinonia. Do you realize that the word fellowship is very much the word for the collection? Now, very recently, I have gone against my long tradition. I've, I have now stopped putting my money in the collection plate. I had a long battle because I like putting my money in the collection plate. But because Linda Bell is about to retire, and she's been persuading me for years that I ought to do it on, a, on the sort of uh, get it through the bank, I have succumbed. And so I pass the collection plate when it goes past. Incidentally, when I went to the West Indies once, I was very intrigued in the West Indies, they take money out of the collection plate. It comes down, they put some in and take it out. It's a rather nice sort of way of doing it. One hopes they take out less than they put in, but one doesn't quite know about that. I suppose why I like the collection plate, it demonstrates to me that I am actually, part of my worship is what I give to God. And it's very interesting, the word koinonia is in the New Testament the word collection. It's the word communion. It's the word sharing. Now, whether or not you want to put money in the collection plate is neither here nor there in one sense, except that this is the way we show fellowship in giving, that the work of the gospel may prosper. And that's why in verses 7 and 8 he uses another analogy. He uses the analogy of um, sowing and reaping, which you get in 2 Corinthians, that if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. You can use those verses to do with sowing to the flesh in sexual immorality. But he's talking here primarily about giving and the challenge to Christians to demonstrate by our giving that we share. We share together. It's our work, the gospel work. And do you remember again the context? Paul is trying to say these Galatian Christians against all the false teaching, this is the kind of way we should be living. But also in doing good, verses 9 to 10. Doing, verses 9 to 10, I've got a lovely symmetry. Not symmetry, symmetry. There's a lovely balance about verses 9 and 10. Just let me point out the, the, the balance. There are two words for good. Verse 9 is the word beautiful, bonny. You know, there are some good people who aren't terribly attractive. You know they're good, but you don't really want to be like them. But this is the goodness that attracts people. And then in verse 10 is the other word for good. I actually wish there were more do-gooders. Have you noticed how do-gooders are sort of despised by the world? Sometimes because generally there are some do-gooders who just want to be seen to be do-gooders, want to be known as uh, patronising others. But we need more do-gooders. Would you notice too in this symmetrical verses, two words for not giving up. Beginning of verse 9, let's not become weary. The end of verse 9, if we don't give up. Both words which remind us the temptation to give up. One of those words, I'm told in classical Greek, is about a, a woman being pregnant and longing for the time to come, getting weary, when will the day come? That's the sort of way, way it's used. And the challenge is that uh, it's easy to lose heart in just being normal, good Christian people in the neighborhood, in our family, and wherever. And there are two words for time. Verse 9 and 10, it's the same word in the Greek, 
But it comes twice. In verse 9, it's God's time. At the proper time, we'll reap a harvest. I pray desperately for a, a spiritual awakening in our land. I e- echoed Paul's prayer. I pray desperately for our own diocese and a, new, and a new bishop. I pray desperately that in the mercy and wonder of God, he will turn the tide in all that's happening. I really do. And that's in God's providence and mercy in his time. But our time is verse 10. As we have opportunity, let's do good. The time in our hands now. It's no use praying and waiting for God to do his own work if I'm not prepared to do my work now. So as we have opportunity, as we have time Let's do good. Will you notice the phrase at the end of verse 10? I wonder what you make of it. To all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Does that seem wrong? Shouldn't you actually do good rather especially to the unbelievers to show what Christianity is about? No, no. Paul is wanting to say, look, this is the way you'll make an impact in society, demonstrating within the family of God that there's something very special that we care for each other in a very special way and that the world outside should be able to see it. See that in this microcosm, this is what the world was meant to be like. It will never end here, but it must begin here. The way that we share, the proof that we care, and finally the things that we bear. There's an extraordinary contrast here between what I call the futility and the centrality. And I want to finish on this note because it's, it's a deeply moving end to this deeply moving letter. As I tried to say two weeks ago, when Paul feels very strongly, he uses very strong language, and this letter's been full of it. Who's bewitched you? Last time we thought, he, he said, I wish they'd get castrated if they're going to go down that road. He spoke very sternly because he felt so deeply. But it ends very movingly. There's a futility, and I see Paul, as he writes, with his own hand, adding his last word about these people who are only concerned about their reputation. They're only concerned about their status. They don't want to be persecuted. They want comfort and ease. And there's a battle on wherever we are in the world of today. There is no place for Christians who just want to be the silent majority. We want things to go beautifully. We don't want any conflict. We just want to think that all people are lovely and that somehow in the grace and mercy of God it will all turn round eventually. No, it won't. Apart from God's grace and apart from our commitment and Paul sees the futility of these people who... And do you see that in verse, at the end of verse 12? The only reason they try to make you become circumcised and a genuine Jew, they want not to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. He himself had, chapter 5, verse 11, he was being persecuted because he did make that stand for the cross of Jesus Christ. And I still have that picture of seeing my good friend, Dr. Jim Packer, uh, refused. Uh, he, he will now, if he, goes in, if he goes into a church in that diocese, he will actually be, he will be in danger of being accused of trespass and be taken to court for trespass. And I see that great man of God 
being treated in that kind of manner because he makes a stand for Christian doctrine and Christian morality. And I marvel that more Christians don't rise up and be angry. Do we just see it happening? Do we imagine that somehow uh, we're all kind of brothers? That kind of Dyson woman isn't a Christian, whatever else she may be. And it's very important that we as Christians should see the futility of that life and dare to speak out. On the opposite, and we end on a lovely note, the centrality. No, I'm not going to boast, says Paul, except verse 14 in the cross of Jesus. I remember some weeks ago, Paul was recommending us all to buy the book by John Stott, The Cross of Christ. I'm always glad when Paul suggests a book when I've read it myself. I feel better when I've read it myself, so I don't have to buy it, and yet I can rejoice. It's a great book. And in the last chapter of the cross of Christ, you get a wonderful chapter on the cross in the letter to the Galatians. So one good way to follow up this series is to buy that book, and even for its last chapter, it's worth it, where he demonstrates in this book of Galatians how the cross keeps coming. And one of the ways it comes is this marvellous ending. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus. Why did he boast in the cross? Because at the one place where he was equal with every other believer, he had nothing else to boast about in spite of all that he'd done for Christ. He had nothing to boast about except that Christ God loved him enough to send his son to go through the agony of the cross and die for him. That was the centrality. Anything that pushes the cross out of the centrality, whatever it may be, all these movements you read about in the church of today, if they are pushing the cross out of the center, watch out. Beware. God forbid that I should boast. And the one thing he says in verse 14, do you see it? The world has been crucified to me. And I to the world, I no longer live the world's way and the world's standards. That was dealt with at the cross. The cross demolishes all the status-seeking of the world. We kneel together at this rail. And forgive me, I always find it moving. I'm delighted to be able to help with communion tonight. I, sh- I don't know most of you, I, many of you I don't know these days, but uh, you know, I know a lot of you. And come down and see us all kneeling together with all our differences of background, differences of personality, differences of views and all sorts of things, but united in the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no other place in the world like this. And lest you miss it, then Paul says, look, what counts, verse 15, is not whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, it's whether you belong to the Christ and the cross, you've, you've knelt at the foot of the cross, where there is a new creation, and let no one cause me trouble anymore, says Paul. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. I wonder if anybody remembers in this congregation uh, when we just opened the church hall we had special special meetings dear me, it's a long time ago now and in those special meetings one of the speakers was Bishop Stephen Neal one of the great theologians of the church remarkable man a man who's written the best book there is on Christian faith and other faiths superb man and for about an hour he expounded the cross in an academic way in a way profound way and he finished by reciting by rote he remembered it absolutely a poem about the cross and as this great man of God this learned scholar spoke of the cross tears rolled down his cheek and I felt deeply moved 
Do I feel as deeply as that? The more he knew with his mind, and a very astute mind, of the meaning of the cross, the more he wept when he thought that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. And it should be that the cross of the communion today, we just remind ourselves, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Ah, but it goes just a little further, doesn't it? It's not just that we believe in the marks of the, of the cross. It's that we may have to take up our cross and follow him. It cost Paul a lot. He would have had a lot easier life if he joined the ranks of those who were preaching another gospel. He'd have been comfortable. But from pillar to post, he followed his Jesus. I finish with what is, I think, a slightly unusual exposition of a verse of Scripture, but I think it's fair. Do you remember uh, the moment when Thomas came to the disciples and said to the disciples, his other friends, look, I will not believe until I see the marks of the nails. Then I'll believe. I'd have often thought that's what the world says to Christian people. There are many people who will not believe until they see the marks of the nails. Until they see that actually the cross we preach about is not only believed by us in our intellectual mind, but it's actually lived out in the way we live. And when they see the marks of the cross, when they see genuine Christianity, authentic Christianity, lived out in caring and sharing and bearing and unashamed to follow the cross of Jesus, they'll believe. I'm delighted that so many people have come to faith in Christ in this church down the years and still happening. But isn't this only the beginning? The tip of the iceberg, if that's a usual, proper analogy? If only, if only, we followed this way. May God give us grace never to be ashamed of the gospel in what we say, in what we do, but above all, to bear the marks of Jesus in our fellowship, in our lives. And where better to begin than at a communion rail as we remember the broken bread and the poured out wine and blood. Let's just be quiet now for a moment of prayer and then I'll hand back. I'm simply going to pray a prayer which is an old prayer of the church which I always think sums it up better than I can ever sum it up. Prayer of St. Richard of Chichester. Thanks be to thee, my Lord Jesus Christ, for all the benefits thou hast given me, for all the pains and insults thou hast borne for me. O most merciful Redeemer, friend and brother, may I know thee more dearly know thee more nearly, love thee more dearly, and follow thee more nearly. For thy dear name's sake,